This episode is brought to you by your local Naval Surplus store. Look, bikes are expensive. The tightest stretchy pants in the world won't keep your ride from getting jacked while you stop for a quick protein shake in the wrong neighborhood. But you know what else is expensive? An effective way to keep your custom 20 speeds safe from sticky fingers in public places. If you're trusting your wheels to a normal bicycle lock and chain, you might as well tie it to a lamppost with a big ribbon and bow and a card that says, Happy Birthday, Mr. Bicycle Thief. Your local naval surplus store has the answer to your vanishing velocipedes. Your nation's navy has already perfected the art of securing expensive conveyances. Do you have any idea what the pawn shop value is for a battleship or aircraft carrier? But your navy keeps your government's property secure with super massive chains that it would take literally hours to cut through with the most sophisticated welding iron. As is their way, they make far more of these steel tethers than they need. And where do those extra girdings go? To your local naval surplus store, where you can buy them at a fraction of the taxpayer's cost. You don't even need a lock. Just plunk one of these half-ton links on top of the bike frame and you can bet it's not going anywhere. And tell the girl at the cash register that you heard about your local naval surplus store here to get a discount on an extra, 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 extra large fanny pack to store your new bicycle security system. And thank you, local naval surplus stores, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread. A Gene Wolf story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, James. I wanted to say hello first this time, because it's always you saying hello. <laughs> oh, darn, I was going to jump in and do that. <laughs> uh, you're getting pushy, Craig. That's <laughs> uppity. <laughs> uppity. Well, you could announce that we have corrections. Yes, we do. Hey, you was wrong. You was wrong. So uh, both Pentopsilus on Reddit and Thomas on Patreon, and I think someone else also, but I, I reviewed all the comments and I I couldn't find it. Anyway, they've all pointed out that you know, we were saying, why is it that Jonas thought that the claw that he saw from a distance was burning brandy or mm-hmm. incense? And he said, well, he must be you know seeing something wrong. But uh, these folks have pointed out that alcohol, you know, on brandy uh, when it's burned, it it's, it burns blue. Burns blue. And, yep. And maybe incense does too. I don't know. That one, I'm not sure. My dad would burn incense all the time. And I don't remember the blue, but I'll do a little experiment and maybe we can put a little <laughs> video up just to see if that blue brandy is the color of the claw. Yeah, we need to bring and some science to this podcast. And <laughs> I need to make sure it's cheap brandy, though, because I don't want to burn off the alcohol from good stuff. That's not- That would be a terrible waste. Exactly. <laughs> Listen, Mr. Wizard, let's not be... Uh- <laughs> Let's not go crazy and start spoiling brandy. <laughs> also, uh, Michael Andre Dreesy on Reddit. Dogs are serious, so delirious. 
is uh, Akia's knife collection. You know, we point out that every time we see her, she's got a different weapon. Mm-hmm. And he says her, her knife collection might be a way to count how many times the twins have played the Avern game. So that each oh. victim would have had one of these weapons. So you have the Misericord, the Athame, the Crooked Dagger. That makes three times. Also, what is it? The Lucivy? Is that what you call it? The, the claws so. in her hands? Um, yeah, that's so that's that's four times. Yeah, he could be right. They're, they're stockpiling those somehow. That could be. And I also wonder now, I hadn't thought of this before, but are each of those weapons special somehow? I mean, they talked about knowing terminus est itself right like like mm-hmm. did you see the maker or the mark or something i wonder if the others they're are... all collector's items yeah <laughs> it's, hmm. yeah let's see what else uh i remember last time i suggested that one of the ways that we could possibly give away the items we are collecting the michael swanwick book that marianne swanwick sent us we have like 19 of those we have to figure out how to give mm-hmm. away and we also have a couple posters from don mates and you know one of the things we could do is we could have a little uh story competition for everyone tell a different story of agia's origin and uh so burnish black or that's his name on reddit also joshua elsewhere he said you can call me joshua He's all for that idea. He says, you guys have my vote for the Agia origin story competition. So, all right, we'll get your story ready, man. We should set that up. I mean, I did, I, we should talk to be sure we really want to do that, but maybe we can tell everybody, yeah, start thinking <laughs> if you got a story, because we do need to give those things away. Yeah. Well, you have a lot of experience in that, so you can kind of, oh, you can be a contest. good guide for sure. leading. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. For your other podcast that you see on the side, you, uh, actually, I guess I'm probably... The, the mistress in this case not but, by now certainly since, <laughs> no seriously since i do that one just in like november and december true 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 and uh so yeah i'd like to i'd like to see all the ideas incidentally i'm kind of moving back around to the idea that maybe she is a pelerine and saying well maybe this looks to me like she's maybe a runaway witch but she could be a runaway pelerine and when we get to sort of lictor i i I think there's going to be some evidence that there could be some crossover between the groups. They may be. Why not both? Yeah, they, they could be like a like like a sister's organization yeah. of the same body. And I mean, the whole thing, like where the the head pelerine stares into him and sort of gets the feeling that he's not that he's not lying. Is that some sort of witchy power? I don't right. Know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, supposedly even the CIA has that power. But right. yeah, that's your point. <laughs> Uh, Charles Gillingham. But if you go down to Gillingham, you'll see the same as I. Has a theory about what the cave is. He was reminded in this episode just how massive the place is. And Severian thought that it was a city. And he points out that some of the new Chinese foundries are massive, huge structures, which he thinks factories might just get bigger and bigger over time. And he suggests it's the ruins of a factory for making ship sails or the materials for the wall because it's nearby the wall. Hmm. So the man-ape situation reminds him of Lovecraft's The Rats in the Wall, although the the ape people themselves reminds him of the Morlocks in The Time Machine. And he thinks it's a puzzle that the man-apes guard the autarch's treasure. He says, but which autark? There's no real reason to hoard treasure besides waiting for the right ruler to spend it. 
Hmm. Could also be Typhons, I suppose. I mean, we we keep assuming it's an old Autarkial thing, but could it have gone even back further? Right, yeah. I forget that Lovecraft story too, by the way. The uh, rats in the wall? Yeah, I forget which one it is or what happens. I'm just blanking. Well, it's so many, yeah, I guess that's... I'll yeah, have to look yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah, I would I would quickly remember if I if I read it again. It's one of his most famous ones. I actually have a, uh, a custom print of a, an artist who did like a poster for rats in the oh, walls. Oh, cool. Yeah. Regarding uh, the Gurlo abuse story, Charles thinks it is so good for so many reasons. He says, first, it's perfect black humor. Second, it shows how warped and twisted both the Guild is, as well as the Commonwealth in general. But most importantly, it summarizes what he sees as the main theme of the solar cycle and maybe of Wolf in general. Wolf, he says, doesn't include so much violence in his book just for pulpy goodness. Sexual reproduction, even on a cellular level, is violent. It's an invasion of sort, which means the byproduct of sexual reproduction, evolution, is violent as well. The story even goes as far as to compare the male contribution to a weapon. Severian's contribution to the story being nothing but violence, be it in the state's permission or not. His weapon quickly removes branches from the tree of life. It's also a paradox that this same weapon, male violence, is what creates the branches in the first place. And then he says, and then consider how Wolf often writes men and women archetypically, and that the act of reproduction is a kind of invasion. He says, I started coming up with this craze theory while first reading the books, when Alton started talking about genetic memory and how the smallest part of a man could spread memory. He thinks, quote, Severian's perfect memory and why he's the new son and why Father Aniri is interested in little girls and who's Severian's sister and why he doesn't mention having kids, even though he's hornier than the devil himself. <laughs> well, you know, well, I think there's an essay in that, Charles. I'd love to see that developed. For now, you know, I've got the link to the uh, Chapter 7 Facebook discussion in the show notes. I wonder, that's definitely, I think he's right overall, but, um, and I don't know if this is too Catholic to say this, but of course, this is a situation where we're not getting reproduction at all, right? Right. And it's, so maybe there's something, that's why I said, I don't want to get too sort of stereotypical about Catholic things, but here, you know, sex without reproduction is a sin. A sin and or not well or, a sin. I mean without possibility. Yeah. 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 So um but it's definitely yeah, it, not the best. It's not what it's really <laughs> for, right? But now I'm trying to think too, how many times are there where we I can think of a couple stories maybe where people are getting pregnant in mm-hmm. Wolf, but it's it's less common. But still, I think that would definitely be an interesting line to follow up on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. David Dines on Facebook. He has some other theories. He notes that Brother Cook and Brother Porter are never named, and he wonders if they could be single-purpose automatons. He finds their, quote, naming odd in relation to everyone else that he can bring to mind in the Citadel. They are the only ones that I can point to to where their profession is their name. Further, Brother Cook is said to perform such cooking as might be interesting or pleasurable. Perform is such a bizarre verb to use in this case. That's true. On the contra side, he can't point to any visual description of either of them, so there's no physical aspects to wrestle with. He says, I feel like Wolf would have 
had some small aspect of them described to lead toward this idea, if the idea was what he envisioned for them. And to that, uh, David Berner, that is David Stockhoff, he can think of a couple pro and con sides to this theory. Quote, naming by occupation seems to fit the monastic setting, and so that would be why they might be the only example. In this case, Cook and Porter would be what's called lay brothers, and they are simply not full brothers and have not taken the vow. On the other hand, automatons would also fit the idea that the order has been dwindling for Chiliads, and why would the order have human brothers who do not seek after truth and penitence anyway? Who would work for these people? Who even knows they still exist? One answer no one, which is why each named brother, even among the apprentices, is special and has been placed there by forces or else to get rid of them unless they're locals. On that scenario, a human cook or porter would have no justification for even being there. So, Craig, I like the idea of the match and, and perhaps the rest of the Citadel having robotic servants that no one sees it worthwhile to comment on. Yeah, and it would go with Severian not really noticing or, or making a big deal out of Talus mm-hmm. and Jonas being partial. I mean, he finally recognizes it, but it's not like it immediately brings up all kinds of questions about yeah. the status of personhood or something like that. Right. right. So um, things that come up later in the book of the long sun. Yeah. Yeah. But I will offer a mundane option that no one else mentioned in this discussion. The job of Porter or cook could be just a job that the journeymen have to take turns at. Mm-hmm. And it's never the same person every day. And so when referring to the job, unless there's a reason to specify a certain guild member, Severian just refers to the job. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Steve Johnson chimed in on email. He's been listening for a while, and now he's ready to come out of lurking mode and do his duty of theory spinning. Welcome, sir. Yes. So he presumes the men apes are called tiger men by Agia because their fur glows in patches. And so it makes stripes. And he offers hmm. that it is a form of bioluminescence, perhaps either in the manner of benthic fishes or perhaps the form of luminescent fungi from rotting wood. He says, as a teen camping in northern Wisconsin, my friends and I would play tricks on one another by night by finding glowing wood in a rotting pile somewhere, pile it up in the doorway of a tent and wait for the reaction by the returning occupant. <laughs> well, you know, when Severian sees them coming toward him, he does refer to bioluminescent river life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that could make sense. I want to camp in northern Wisconsin, in Texas, when we were camping all the time. We never saw glowing wood. That would have been awesome. Yeah, the, yeah, those Wisconsins, they get all of the good stuff. <laughs> He thinks the white tips of the crossbows, he says, they always seem to me to be phosphorus. I see no need for the cave to be a radioactive repository. Okay. Baldander's dream of teeth could very well be a reference to stalagmites and stalactites. Yay. <laughs> um, the mother of a childhood classmate, he says, was a German immigrant named Thea, and she always pronounced her name Tia, not Thea. So he says, I've always read Thecla and Thea with a hard T instead of a soft TH. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And that's probably nearer to the original Greek. So I'm surprised I haven't been pronouncing their names that way and driving everyone crazy. Yeah. 
So uh, soon after reading Book of the New Sun, the first time, he says, we bought a house near Kalamazoo, Michigan, abutting the Al Sabo Preserve. Uh, evidently, Al Sabo was a local naturalist of some renown rather than a <laughs> semi-sentient hyena. But he says, I can't be sure. In any case, I never encountered any fell beasts while hiking there. <laughs> well, you know, he may have heard one and didn't know it. So That's awesome. My first son was born in Kalamazoo. Yeah. We lived around there for about three years, but I never, never encountered that. <laughs> it's one of those uh, town names that people don't believe is real. So, right. Yeah. You know, right, right. Kalamazoo. It sounds great on a, for a song, but it's not a real place. <laughs> uh, let's see. He says, I grew up in Chicago and as a college student participated in many Chicago area science fiction events. Gene Wolfe was always hovering on the periphery of those events, either indirectly people talking about him a lot or SFWA author colleagues who would mention having just spent time with him or sharing agents or whatever or more directly in situations where I was just too shy to walk up and introduce myself. He says that with regards to the narrative gaps in the Book of the New Sun and other works by Wolf, quote, I think he must have carefully outlined the plot, metaplot, and meta-metaplot, and then decide thoughtfully what to leave out to induce the desired level of ambiguity and apprehension in his readers. I remember being very confused after book-to-book transitions, but then thinking back on them in amazement of how it caused me to review more deeply what was going on. And you know what? That's kind of true for me. I would. How many times do I get to the end of a novel and say, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Peace is a good example. Mm-hmm. And then you, know, you stop and you think about it. And you say, well, I guess most of my questions were actually answered. I thought about that too, if that's how he wrote. If like his first draft was much more straightforward. And then as he wrote, he tried to think of ways to keep yeah. it, to have a surface story, but to really start to take out all those different layers. And I just have no idea. I've never, I would love to see his drafts. Yeah, Maybe, with, maybe yeah. one day we'd be able to see any drafts that he kept. But I wonder, because that's that's kind of a cool way to to do something. And there was actually a story I wrote one time trying to do that. And it turned out kind of cool because it made for this very weird effect in the actual story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if you could keep it up for that many novels. But I, I wonder if Wolf will one day have a Christopher Tolkien who can come in and flesh out all this, give us a Silmarillion of the New Sun. And it would be nice if there was actually that much material that you could actually do oh, that I know. with. I know other novels, but no, I mean, drafts of, and to be honest, like if we did get to see things like that and there were other pieces in there, people would devour it. Right. Because even yeah. if it just only halfway kind of shed light on some things, people would love yes. it. So I yeah, definitely any potential small press publishers or even not small press publishers, that might be an excuse to go talk to his family <laughs> or yeah. estate or wherever the, <laughs> or go check out those papers that he right. gave, they, that were donated. Yep. So. Yep. Oh, ha ha. I got him to buy and read Hamlet's mill. He says, um, it expresses in what? Uh, 800 pages ideas that could be expressed and supported in 200. It's really <laughs> amazing to me how often and in such diverse places, the main thesis shows up. We now live in the Southwestern United States where it seems the dates of first settlements are constantly being pushed back by new archaeological evidence, often consisting of depiction of astronomical configurations mm. or events. Yeah. You know, 
it's just a crazy book. And yet, <laughs> it just colors everything I think about when I when I'm reading, you know, old stories and, and this. And I say, oh wait, this is this has all sorts of cosmological, astronomical undertones to it. Yeah, and one thing that's just cool about the book, whether you agree with it or not, it's amazing because I feel like instead of just the single thesis of how this stuff works, it's more interesting. Like the last time I was reading through it more interesting to see how their minds work, like in mm -hmm. how they were making some of the associations. Cause let's be honest, some of the connections and the analogies they make are not Dense. They're obscure. Yeah. Occluded. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. But it's still really fascinating. Once you start to feel that rhythm of how they make those connections mm -hmm. that you can, you can see that thought process. And that's just yeah. really cool. I mean, I don't know if Wolf had the, I don't know if that's something that he liked or if it, worked exactly for him but but those two in that book it's really fun to get in their heads you remember once one time I, I happened to be reading some article on just listing giants in legends and mythology oh, yeah i said okay okay these are all the constellation orion see here's a giant that goes and punishes people who don't store up food for for winter that's <laughs> because orion is up during the winter and uh you know it's just it, yeah it just goes on and on and on you accuse me of being what was it an alchemist wizard or something like that so <laughs> well you know they were always right about everything oh yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean that's that's kind of i mean alchemy and the sort of renaissance thing where everything is about sympathy and analogy and whenever mm -hmm. you can find analogies and, and sympathies like that you've found a real connection um, yeah, but yeah, but like in alchemy, it got a lot more creative than necessarily <laughs> or deductive, I guess you could say. Yeah, but still anyway. Yeah. Yep. Let's see. He says, I've just finished reading Earth of the New Sun, and there are some really glaring hints that the first Severian or at least some multiple parallel Severian theory holds a lot of water. Now to reread Book of the New Sun again, again. <laughs> <laughs> he says, thank you for the very enjoyable and thought provoking podcast. Well. Thank you for Thank coming you along for listening and yeah. And for provoking my own thoughts. Let's see. Also an email Camden Milby. He says, hi, just finished listening to your episode on chapter seven, the traitorous from uh, shadow of the torturer, where you pondered where the phrase blue of cheek came from. Ah, I remember wondering about that mm -hmm. early on in the novel, nausea by Sartre, the narrator introduces the subject of the book he's writing a fictional French aristocrat named Rolabon. Uh, is that is that correct pronunciation? Uh, for French? I have no idea. My French is terrible, so I have no idea. <laughs> According to a contemporary quote, he took, she adds, great care with his coiffure, and I never saw him without his wig. But his cheeks were blue, verging on black, owing to his heavy beard, which he shaved himself, not being at all expert. So Rolaban is a fictional character from history that the narrator tries and fails to understand in exactly the way Severian describes trying to infer the motivations of Emar the Almost Just uh, when he got up from his meditation under the tree and chased a dog. And there's another correlation, he says, between Olten and Nausea character, the self-taught Man, They both spend years of their lives compulsively reading to no clear end, studying for the sake of it. The self-taught man ends up being kicked out of the library for touching himself and fondling a boy, and Alton goes blind. 
shortly after he becomes master. He may even have had a similar indiscretion. Blindness in old wives' sale is said to be caused by, you know, masturbation. And he just ascended and gained a new apprentice when he lost his sight. In the end, they both devoted their lives to a meaningless Sisyphean task and then had the means to accomplish it taken away. Ah, Interesting. That's really good. That's kind of a cool connection. And if nothing else, now I want to go see if like blue of cheek, if that's like a common French phrase for like five o'clock shadow or something like that. Mm-hmm. And also to see, I mean, yeah, the nausea stuff is cool. I have, I've never really heard Wolf talked about in context with Sartre before, but I'm also wondering if it is a common French phrase, does it show up in Proust? Because that would be, especially near the beginning yeah. of it, that would, that would be a big tell right there. That would, yeah, there. that definitely would. Let's see, we got another one, another email from Bob King. He says, just a quick email to say, I appreciate your tireless and good humor passage through the Commonwealth. I've learned so much and anticipate a lot more. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. And thanks for coming along. Yes, indeed. Thank you. He says, one small tidbit. I've always loved the Disney-esque tableau of Kibby preparing to read Master Gurlow's letter as Severian and Olten stood quote, in a little circle of candlelight while all the books crowded around. Mm -hmm. I can picture it clearly and wish there was an illustration of the scene a la The uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice for my study. It's a playful wolf moment and quite surprising. And that leavens the grimness of the book. Yeah, okay. Yeah, where you have, I guess the idea is the books are personified. Mm -hmm. They're part of the witnesses all standing yeah, around in the yeah. tableau. Yeah. But I can see that. It's been, I actually watched Fantasia again about a year ago. And yeah, there are definitely some scenes in the Sorcerer's Apprentice part where, yeah, you've got that. Yeah, I can I can catch the vibe. <laughs> definitely. But I, <laughs> Is I'd that a real scene it. though that he's kind no, of No, I don't to? think so. I mean, I and I, I'm pretty sure there's a part where where Mickey's like in a library um, and it's all kind of mm-hmm. dark and things like that. But I get the sense of what he's talking about, like how a lot of the older Disney things would when there was darkness, yeah. There'd be like right. in a spotlight. Like I think there's a one in Pinocchio, I think, where they're out on the street and there's oh, a spotlight. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the light's so great in that movie. I love yeah. it. And you know. As, as Jiminy Cricket says, what's an actor need with a conscience anyway? <laughs> so, so let's see. We got another email from Angela Ripley Nelson. She says, hi, I am thoroughly enjoying your podcast as I slowly reread the New Sun books. You have the honor of being my first podcast. No, well, cool. yeah. Sorry to take so much time from your life. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're not even done. <laughs> Uh, and I should say that Angela is definitely one of us. She's only read to Earth of the New Sun, but she also seems to have read the Peter Wright book, uh, Shadows of the New Sun, with all the Gene Wolfe interviews. And she's new, but she's come loaded for bear. <laughs> she says, I've heard that a novelist writes out his or her own questions. Wolf seems to me, so far, a combination of an engineer, everything is logical and has a reason, and a mystic. So some things are logical, trace them back and there's a reason, but other parts seem to dive deep into the unknown where you find more imagery, suggestion and intuition than clear answers. That's probably true. I think for those parts, you end up with mystery and paradox, the things we can get a glimpse of, but not really know. 
Well, I reject that. <laughs> <laughs> I will know it all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I want to know it all, but I I totally sympathize with that. Yeah, the idea that that Wolf is an incredibly clear, logical thinker who is also fascinated with things that might not have that kind of clear and logical solution. And yeah. I mean, that's why I think he and Borges are similar too. I mean, that's what we're we're doing on Patreon right now is Borges stories. And right. As we read more Borges, the more I can totally see why Wolf would be drawn to him just in that same yeah. kind of sense of, I mean, yeah, because Borges has some stories that are just kind of like logical explorations of ideas. But then there's always that other strange aspect to it, too. Yeah. I, I totally buy it. Let's see. So what does she have for us? She says regarding Mag, that's the uh, the patron saint of the witches. She says, when one of my sons was younger, he loved a story titled The Green Snake from the Golden Book of Fairy Tales with a witch named Old Mag. And we read it over and over and he would talk about Old Mag. And I assume that this was the identity of the witch's saint. The name Mag is also associated with Queen Maeve or uh, Medb of Ireland, a symbol of ambition and power, which seems like someone a witch might emulate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know. I didn't know this one, but after she told me this, I began <laughs> diving deep. And yeah, I see this as really having a lot of potential uh, resonance in this story, maybe even deliberate resonance that Wolf has woven in. It was written in the turn of the 18th century by a French author, Marie-Catherine Alnoy, and reviewing it, I... Well, it's a retelling of the marriage, in a way, of Cupid and Psyche. It's got twins. It also has some parallels to the Twelfth Night, with they're sailing away and then um, being shipwrecked on an island, which I think uh, that Valeria's story overlays as well. And, of course, the sequestered twin gets help from a snake, you know, like Severian does with the Chimaean. So I'm, I'm really going to have to keep this in mind hmm. going forward. All right. That's a new one to add to the potential list. Yeah, right. And she says, regarding why it would be improper for a witch to play Catherine, she assumes it's because, quote, in the legend, Catherine is a virgin. And based on Gerlo's testimony, the witches, quote, aren't known for their sexual purity. Also, in the legend, Maxentius's wife was also named Valeria. According to some version, she was converted to Christianity by Catherine's arguments and then martyred by her husband. And I don't know if this ties into the new son Valeria or not. I, you know, I think it all goes into the mix, wow. metaphorically, honestly. I do. Mm. She says that Catherine's face, being like a pool of pure water found in the midst of wood, made her think of C.S. Lewis's Wood Between the Worlds with the association of traveling to different times and places, a pool of pure water could be mirror-like, and mirrors are associated with travel between time and dimensions. Varian, the future time walker, might know <laughs> such a place. You know, I think that association of a face like a pool of water in a wood, associating it with uh, C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew, I think that actually did come up in the uh, on the Earth list at some point. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I should have mentioned that. Well, you've also got the Brook Madrigal, right? I mean, right. that, again, is a kind of little pastoral bit of water and 
kind mm-hmm. of sylvan area that's again kind of between worlds yeah. yeah and then she says in the feast when after the elevation ceremony Severian wakes up and he thinks that the maid from the ceremony has been in his room and he smells the the smell of uh burning rose which is the false thecla's scent and so that suggests that maybe the autark was there perhaps well she says the, you know, the smell of perfume quote i assume Maybe the guild sent Severian the false Thecla as a treat on his special night, but he was too wasted to do anything, so she left. And regarding Marubius, it does not seem strange to me that Marubius would check in on him. Severian hasn't been drunk before, and it's a significant night and a rite of passage, which is the kind of time Marubius and Triscales seem to show up. Severian mentions that he has never been good with alcohol, and being drunk can lead to a nightmarish experience for some people. And Marubius might have been there to personally give the dream or the vision and be associated with it. These interpretations are simplistic, maybe, but they seem logical to me. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, the trick is more about like what Marubius is and why he would be yeah. looking in on him at that point. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I mean, the thing about the false Thecla, that's interesting. Like, did they try to get her there earlier because that would have happened before he visited right yeah um yeah i don't know well he does wake up and he feels like huh well let's let's finish this email and she says i also thought the presence of catherine in severian's room felt like a very early memory or an association of a mother maybe she checked in on him as well but the idea that he would behead and resurrect his own Mother, why would anyone set him up for such a traumatic experience? For what purpose? If I was Severian and found out later I'd been set up to kill my own mother, I would be incredibly angry. So angry I might walk away from the powers that be and refuse to have anything to do with them. So that part didn't jive for me. But of course, these are all just theories. Yeah. Well, okay. Angel, thanks. And I fully expect we're going to be hearing more from you. Why would they do it? Well, Craig, as you know, you know, this is a pretty brutal world. Severians grew up in a pretty brutal situation. The situation at the House Absolute, the Commonwealth, is is crazy. I mean, the basically you have these women, these shadow women who are supposed to be substitutes for the, you know, the real exultant women. And he just uses them as prostitutes mm-hmm. in, in a place in the seediest part of town. So, I mean, frankly, it's not all that surprising they would do something like this. But as I suppose Angela knows, I think that maybe his mother was in on it. I think that the maid is his mother and that she's there as an opportunity to see Severian grow up. I mean, think, look how proud she seems of Severian at his elevation. Severian actually mentions this. She's just grinning from ear to ear after the ceremony. And Craig, this gives me a chance to talk about a Curiositas Earthus that's been forming in my head for a while. Okay. Curiositas Earthus. So, why did the false Thecla say that Severian's Thecla is not, quote, the real Thecla? any more than she is. So here's my theory. 
given that the Kaibits are clones of the Exaltants and that the Exaltants themselves are genetically the same. They only look different because of some other means after birth that, that that's done to them. Here's my solution. All the exultants are born clones as twins or more. And one is randomly selected from them to be the exultant. So Thecla is no more the real Thecla than the Kaibit. In which case, if Severian's mother was a runaway Kaibit, and I do think she will, could be, then she could be the false Thecla of a previous batch. She could be the Thecla, the Thecla's Kaibit of a previous batch. And that is why Severian thought that he sensed the maid was in his room after his elevation. And then he smelled burning rose, the false Thecla scent, because, you know, that was his mother's scent as well. She was there, and her scent is the same. And so Thecla and Thea are half-sisters because they are both clones of an original set of sisters, perhaps fraternal twins. What do you think of that? You told me that one before, and I think it's fascinating, I have to say. Um, I just, I don't, as far as whether it's true, I think what makes it really compelling is the idea that something weird about the exultants being twins or at least being cloned in some way. And maybe, maybe if they're not twins, maybe there's something like better and worse clones or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the purer ones get to be the more real person or something like that. I don't know, but it definitely fits in with that whole weirdness thing. Cause otherwise that line, the way we had talked about it was more about, just sort of philosophizing a little bit like, right. like, um, which is fine. Um, but it seems like that's not necessarily the place for it, that Wolf would be leaving us some kind of clue or something. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like that too, because then you've got a stronger connection between the fake one and Thecla right. herself. Well, it leads me to be again, reminded how little we know about the exaltants, mm -hmm. but their history was, we're told by Jonas, you know, that of course they're, they're the most recent arrivals on earth that rather than being the old families, they're actually the newest of all the families. Yeah. And we really don't know anything about them. No, I know. And who knows too, if that explains a little bit why they tell Severian that's a twin name and, mm -hmm. you know, well, that would mean maybe he was part of a cloned process from something else um hmm. and yeah and they do say he's always tall he's not quite exultant tall but he's he's close yeah. so yeah well we move on <laughs> ori kaworski loved the chapter seven episode he says it's the best so far which is saying something well and he says it's inspired him to, quote, try my hand at the first Severian theory, which might resolve a question that's gone from nagging issue for me at the end of Citadel of the Autark to a roaring, howling hole in the fabric of my reality by the end of Earth of the New Sun. <laughs> he does not understand why the heroes would need a human permission the, the trigger theory, or a human's accomplishment, the test theory, to do what they always could have done at any time. And I, I got to confess, that's always been an issue of plot for me, which is to rekindle the sun, exterminate the human population of Earth, and prepare it for colonization and repopulation. I don't believe that in all of Earth's population that only Severian had the ability or the will to do it. It's telling that we don't know what, quote, do or it really means in the narrative. And I'm certain 
that we never see the so-called test and that Severian or and first Severian allegedly were the first and only ones to pass. So this is my first Severian theory. If someone has beaten me to the punch with these ideas, apologize. Love to see your version. He says, this is mine. A real life magician named Asi Wind once took the audience through the construction of a trick. He would ask rhetorically things like, why did I have this here? And why did I do this? And the answer is because I had to. You start at the desired effect and you work backwards. Everything on the stage is there for the furtherance of the effect at the end. This is how First Severian constructed his trick. The entire idea of the new sun came after the appearance of the new sun. To begin with, he says, I assume that in First Severian's world, there was no conciliator and no claw. I, I believe that too. On top of that, I'm saying that there was no idea that there could even be a new sun at all. If there were autarchs, there was certainly no test. So first Severian, first Agia, possibly first Baldanders, then maybe our Hathor or crew of a badass thieves of malcontents and a dying <laughs> Vancey in Earth that had no hope of and no thought of and no expectation of resurrection. In the course of their adventures, they came across the heroes. The heroes are not angels or advanced humans or a species of symbiotic with humans. Yeah, they say things to imply all that, but they are capable of lying. And they are from a higher plane. They are very powerful, and maybe that power can be harnessed to humans' ends for the right price. How Severian and company found or raised the heroes can possibly be reconstructed from the test. Maybe first Agia was a wannabe or accomplished thaumaturgist. Maybe first Baldanders had the science. Maybe Hathor's mirrors called them or pulled them in. There is nothing in the book to suggest this, but I like to think that whatever happened, happened at the last house. I believe that Severian and Agia, with or without Baldanders and Hathor, pulled off, either planned or by mistake, the rekindling of the sun which act itself might have been nothing but a byproduct, a creation of power source of an experiment investing First Severian with the awesome power of traveling through time. I believe that at the end of this experience, First Agia and First Baldanders were destroyed, possibly while trying to stop First Severian, and Hathor might have survived by fleeing into his mirror, and therefore the Hathor our Severian sees might be the sole survivor of the crew in this timeline. So in this telling, First Severian, the sole survivor of either a failed altruistic project, rekindling the sun, or a self-aggrandizing stunt, becoming a time traveler, has committed the ultimate act of genocide. This would be the statement of, of the atrocity that the whole world would be amazed at, that he and Agia would create, I would suppose. And if he is, at heart, a moral or self-justifying person, he might choose to try to make things right as best he can, but of course without giving up his power, which we know depends on the new sun. And he goes all the way back to the reign of Typhon and creates the myth of the new sun and the tests of the autarchs in order to make what he already did seem like an uncertain salvation myth, mysterious and difficult to achieve. Then he interferes with our Severian's timeline to keep him away from bad influences like Agia and Baldanders and to try to make himself into a better person. Severian isn't tested to bring the new son. He's always brought the new son. You have always been the caretaker, Mr. Torrance. <laughs> what he needs for his personal sanity 
is a narrative that justifies what he already did. So this is really good. That one ups you, I got to say. <laughs> That's getting to some absolutely, well, um, oh shoot, what's the time travel movie? Starts with a P. Uh, where they sit, they lie in the box and go back. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, primer, primer. Yeah, this is primer level complication too. <laughs> but also, while you were saying that, I was sitting there thinking. You know, we were talking about drafts before. What if yes. Wolf actually like wrote out a story one time and he's like, "Okay, I'm not going to use that. That's going to be a history." And then he wrote, "That is not far <laughs> off from what I think." <laughs> I yeah. Like, and this, however, is a great draft for a story entrance into the Agia origin story. So think about that one, Ori. Yeah, I have no idea how you could find that proven or disproven even way <laughs> in the text because it <laughs> depends so much on the background. Um, but that's that's impressive. I do have to yeah, say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It also, strangely enough, there are certain things that it, it seems less contradictory than some of the ways we talk about possible repeating severians mm. in this case what you're trying to manipulate isn't the outcome it's just sort of like what somebody thinks about the outcome um, yeah and that's there are fewer moving parts right <laughs> in order to make that happen <laughs> you're just trying to focus on one guy's yeah. feeling oh you that. know what yeah. i that's a good point I, I never thought of the heroes as the manipulators and there, there, i mean there's multiple varieties of these of it being a simplification of the story, a, a way to have fewer moving parts. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. The, the story you're going to read here, guys, is actually a simpler <laughs> version than what was actually going on. Well, uh, yeah. I, but then, of course, Ori has added in all of the moving parts again. So let's see. Let's see. Another one on Reddit. Uh, this one was posted by a borrowed mannequin. <laughs> uh, yeah. And this Redditor uh, has a Haythor puzzle. This is on the Haythor. He says, I'm working through a few theories on who or what Haythor is. And this most recent episode of the podcast touched on a few points I've been contemplating. Haythor is a sailor, possibly having some history with the torturer's tower, his fixation on justice, his searching for his lost lady love, knowledge of torture traditions, etc. I think it's possible that Haythor is actually Severian's old pal, Iada. Uh, he points out that Severian goes as far as to point out that under different circumstances, Iata could have basically been Severian had he met Vodalus or been the one to collect and deliver Thecla's books. He, he also sort of kicks off the events that lead Severian meeting Vodalus and the crew because he runs through the cemetery and everyone's chasing him. So if Hathor is Iata, that would begin a pattern of his having a behind-the-scenes hand in making the plot move forward. And there are more connections. He says, I don't have my notes with me currently, but I can try to elaborate further if needed. Well, that's, no, that's really good. Um, he also, here's something that is really good, though. He later comes back and points out that Jonas's name means dove. And he, does, he says, I don't know what it means, but I mean... You don't know what it means. It would mean that Jonas is Hathor's paracoida. Let's face it. Oh, wow. And yeah, so you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. But the associations are real. The the all of the things about Yada, Yada is 
a, a bit of a mystery because he does sort of disappear mm-hmm. at the end of Earth. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's good. That's definitely worth tucking away. I'm more later. fascinated by Jonas being the paracoida. <laughs> again, there's the thing about Jonas and Heather are never seen right next to each other. They're always. Yeah, that's, yeah they're yeah. like Clark Kent and Superman. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. Still, that also makes Yada a little more interesting. Um, it's a cool way to say, here's this character who doesn't seem to really be well thought out, maybe, or just plays a little minor role. But that could be hiding something bigger. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, Yada, though, Wolf makes a lot more of him really than you'd think um in castle the otter right he's he's included in the joke telling essay yep um and then he's he the, also, he, he's the map right he's the right he gets he's a protagonist right. in the map wolf keeps coming back to him in a way that he doesn't for draw rosha in fact uh <laughs> in fact redditor at fatwa hitmensch that's a great name <laughs> so actually says to be honest the one thing I have difficulty reconciling with Wolf is that he writes characters that he will just as soon discard, since almost every character that seems to have a major impact on Severian is given a proper conclusion and has a recurring presence. You know, I don't know about that. Uh, Father Aniri seems to kind of disappear. We, he doesn't actually have a conversation at the end with Severian. Right. No, he uh, Rudison does, unless Rudison himself is Aniri is. Yeah, but Aniri's also relatively—he's mentioned a bunch in Earth, but he never comes back. And you'd think that if he really, because he—it is all suggested that he's the one guy who seems to know what's going on behind the scenes. Seems like we would actually get him as sort of like the new—I don't know—ancient wizard figure or something in Earth. But he—he's he, yeah. not there, right? Okay. Um, we got some, this is all getting so complicated, Craig. Not only do we have things coming in on email, not only do we have things coming on Twitter, on Reddit, on Facebook. Now, of course, we have the Patreon and people are making comments on that as well. Uh, Dana F. Dana, Dana, don't you want to be mine? He says that uh, regarding Agia and Agalus, says, well, you know, they're both some kind of mechanical constructs. Agalus is busted without his human face, Terminator skull. It, once again, that that theory that the face that Severian saw when he walked into the rag shop was Agalus's real, face. real yep. face, and that he actually just put on his mask. And we, you know, he's only wearing a mask for the rest of that. I can't get away from that, Craig. That just keeps. It also is the closest explanation I've ever gotten to the bands that the reason why he still has bands on is because he's wearing a mask. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, Dana F says, Agalus is busted without his human face. Agia's head clangs in the cell scene with when Severian strikes her. Is the Kamehian also inside a construct? Is this the tie to the witches for Agia? What if the witches are a weird cult? to bringing extraterrestrials via constructs. Who knows? Thomas. Thomas has a lot of questions. He says, one, when you talked about people in the garden, you discussed whether people were actual historical people or people who had gotten lost in the garden, etc. One thing you didn't mention then was the fact that Severian could understand the language of the explorers, which seems to hint at them not being historical people. Yes. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. Of course, 
he never seems to meet anyone who just, you know, speaks a totally incomprehensible language. So it's hard to say, but it's a good point. Didn't we talk about how the, uh, the Ashians and the, the Ashians Ashians do speak a different language, but we never hear it. So yeah, he helpfully gives us a, a translator mm-hmm. who still talks Ashian, but in Commonwealth right. language. And then secondly, about Valeria, you've talked several times about how Severian refers to Valeria when he lists all his favorite women as the forgotten girl. And you take this to mean that he is pretty much forgotten about her and then mysteriously remembers her and falls in love and marries her later. Well, I mean, it's more than that. He kind of increases his his love for her as he goes on, Mm -hmm. it it seems to me. But he says, um, I took the reference to her as forgotten to mean forgotten, not by Severian himself, but forgotten by the world and the autarch, all alone with her servants in that tower. Maybe even forgotten since she's from a different time. Yeah. Uh, next, about Drota and Rosha. Okay, Craig, this is really good. He says, I, I looked for this in the subreddit and searched through the earth list and didn't find anyone mentioning this. I haven't heard this and I love it. He says, I'm not quite sure what it means, but I always thought their names were suspicious. Drotus sounds a lot like droit in French for law, or droita, uh, I don't, I'm not going to try a French pronunciation, but it's the, it's French for the direction right. And Rocha sounds a lot like Reich, German for law, or Rechts, uh, German for the direction right. So maybe they are just one person, which makes Severian misremembering the pikes make sense, well, maybe a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> or they are someone's uh, Severians, the autarchs, the master torturers, right hand men. Well, I just think the association for other names to the law when they've grown up with the torturers to really be compelling, and that I think he's really coming on to the possibility for why Wolf chose those names for mm-hmm. them. Yeah, that's a lot of good food for associations there. Yeah, yeah. But he has a, a, a personal uh, theory inspired by the first Severian theory. Yeah, great. I call it the everyone is Severian theory. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, every main male character is Severian from a slightly different timeline. And I'm not sure who's coordinating all of it. Maybe Father Aniri or the first Severian. <laughs> He's got Boldanders. I, I mean, Boldanders seeming parallel with Severian is, is is well known. Well, once we said that Heather was Severian, this was just the logical conclusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Alton uh, has Severian who went wrong and started caring too much about the past. Well, there is that scene when he meets Alton where Severian feels like they are both buried and both dead. And then there's little Severian. Obviously, Severian. He says, Hey, Thor, space Severian, who's gone crazy. Autark, the Severian who fails to bring the new son. Agalus, Severian, if he had remained with his twin sister. Agalus is the only male main character he meets who is of a similar age to himself. So Agalus has to wear a mask so Severian won't recognize himself. Or he is, you know, resurrected by necromancy. Um, let's see. Well, anyway, he has a, a lot more to say about this. Actually, you know, it's interesting that he should say this because coming up uh, with this episode, we're going to have a little bit of time where I think everyone's going to say, yeah, James is really 
the originator of the everyone is Severian theory because <laughs> that's is actually coming up. I don't I I don't really like the uh everyone is Severian theory and regardless of what you're going to hear in this episode, I'm actually moving already moving away from it, but I think there's something to it. That's all I'm saying. What's what Severian knows about what's going on in that cave? It has something to do with his memory, uh, something he remembers. That what he knows is the memory. Put it that it's getting way. very platonic in here. All of us, Severian <laughs> is the form of maleness. A, yeah. and... Severian is not any one person. <laughs> He's he is them all. He is the Commonwealth. The the innumerable people that that if if one Severian fell off a bridge and jumped and drowned, every minute the the city of Nessus would never deplete. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not deriding it because, well, trust me, after this episode, you're going to recognize that it has appeal with me. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you know, nobody ever commented on the thing that I came away. I thought was the biggest mystery was whether Severian healed the man ape's arm. And everyone just said, well, no, maybe he did. Who knows? Who cares? But, um, it's way sexier to say everyone's Severian. But everyone had so many so many theories this time. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It was a lot to corral. And You're thank training you. everyone well, James. <laughs> you are blazing the path. And- everyone is James now. <laughs> Mark's sitting there just like grinding his teeth. <laughs> and we do have new patrons that we need to thank. At the journeyman level, we have Michael Grubb. And Andrew A. Yeah, you're right. It's I may have mispronounced your name, Andrew. Is maybe it's Andrew Ah. <laughs> and at the master level, Dana F. Dana, Dana, don't you wanna be my Nudis Magrudis? A B C or Mr. Alphabet, as I call him or her. <laughs> Reba Jacobs. Reba put a stopper at the bottom of the tub. And Jason Vaguely. You vaguely spoke of dreams you had. You got it in just under the gun. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, everybody, for signing up again. And again, like we always say, we can't tell you how much we appreciate that because we can pay the bills to keep this thing on here. Yeah. And it obligates us to keep coming back. You keep us uh, singing for our supper. Exactly. Oh, one other last thing. We had a little referendum on the Patreon side, and we were both wondering, should we break the comments away from the, the chapters? Because, I mean, look at today. The comments are almost as long as the chapters themselves. Mm, possibly longer in this yeah. case. <laughs> so... We did a little test and everyone seemed to, well, the majority who had an opinion far and away felt that they did add to the episodes. They added to the feeling of a give and take, I I think is what I picked Mm -hmm. up. So, yeah, we're going to keep on including these uh, sections at the beginning of the chapter episodes. But in the show notes, I will always include timeline notes because apparently 
You maniacs go back and re-listen to these episodes multiple times and you'd like to know exactly where you have to fast forward to. <laughs> so we'll put that on there and we'll also try to start going back in the older episodes too and right. add it back in there. Won't be immediate, but we'll we'll do that. So, all right, let's uh, put a timestamp right here and uh, we're going to go on to the next chapter. Chapter 8, The Cultillari. All right, well, uh, let's talk about the meaning of this chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is one's a little different uh, in that we're used to the meaning of the chapter showing up at the end. But typically we like to find places where it's already showing up earlier, and I'm not sure that that's the case. A cultillari, it's from the Middle Ages, and it's a regular soldier whose principal weapon was a heavy knife or a short sword. A cultilus is a dagger. And so as a noun, it's understood to be a bandit or an outlaw, essentially a, a cutthroat. Right. And it seems pretty obvious that it's supposed to be about Vodalus's soldiers who are coming for him towards right. the end. But I've got some other possibilities. Well, all right. Well, okay, we'll watch for that. So just before dawn, Severian and Jonas return from the cavern and their encounter with uh, Agia and her henchmen, both of them on Jonas's merry kip. If Severian left the mansion on Sunday, it's Saturday morning or perhaps Sunday morning. Wolf, it seems, is deliberately keeping us off base about the time, but you know that's the only thing that makes sense to me. We didn't discuss how Agia hired her henchmen last chapter, but I think I've mentioned that she'll tell us later she has access to Hathor's silver. And this is peculiar because she had previously described him as a poor sailor. But I believe that when Agia commissioned him, Hathor killed that intellectual fanboy that was standing outside the Hall of Justice with Hathor, the one who gave Severian a silver esteem. That's the one member of the group who is not at Agalus's execution the next day. Mm, that's interesting. That would be a cool little backstory that's not there. Yeah. And that's right. He doesn't get mentioned in the part again. Yeah. Cool. So there's no talking as they return to the inn. The sky is beginning to lighten to turn gray in the east. Jonas unsaddles the Mary Kip and Severian says, essentially as in a confession, I didn't kill her. <laughs> and Jonas doesn't look at him, just nods and says, I know. Severian says, you said you weren't going to watch, man. And he d- didn't watch. He, he says, I heard her voice when you were practically staying beside me. I mean, come on, Severian. So he asks Severian, will she try again? And Severian has to give this a good long thought. But he last says, oh, yeah, I didn't make her promise not to. And she wouldn't have kept her promise anyway. In that case, Jonas says he would have killed her. We speculated, Craig, on whether Jonas can lie, but he seems to be able to kill people or believes he can, and that could just be the human parts of him that can. We never see him do that, but he's not covered by Asimov's three laws because he assisted Severian in his executions. Mm -hmm. And that does bring up some things we'll talk about a little bit later, but there's Mm -hmm. also, we know from Earth of the New Sun, where Sidero talks about robots do have a sort of different sense of morality. And they definitely can do things that are immoral, but mm-hmm. they say the difference is that they can't lie to themselves about it. So they can't <laughs> rationalize that they're always very clear in their head. They know they're doing something wrong, but they 
they don't care. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's that they don't care. I think it's just that they, they, when they do it, they're fully aware that they are yeah. doing something wrong. Maybe they feel guilt about it, but the one thing they can't do is make themselves feel like they're, they're good for doing it. Yeah. They can't, they rationalize can't rationalize it. it. Yeah. 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 And uh, Jonas says that he would have killed her since she was going to try again. Severian says, yes, that would have been the right thing to do. And as, like you say, Jonas corrects him. He says, well, he doesn't think it's the right thing to do, but he have imagined her stabbing him in his sleep. And so he would have done it anyway, a simple self-defense. So is Jonas susceptible of being killed in the conventional way? Yeah, I think so. And I also think that, I mean, at least as far as his human side is, but mm-hmm. I also like that it's Jonas here who's really got this pretty straightforward sense of right and wrong. Or wait, no, 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 sorry. Yeah, Severian says, yeah, I guess, Jonas says, you should have, yeah. I would have killed her. And John, and Severian says, yeah, I guess that would have been the right, the thing, right thing to do. do. But Jonas <laughs> says, is nope. then like, no, it's it's not right, but it's definitely what would be prudent. Let's put yeah. it that way. Anyway, so Jonas lifted the mace of the man ape that he had collected while he was standing around talking to Severian and Agia. And then they both realized that it's of, quote, pounded gold, which is to say gilded in gold. Pounded gold is gold that's been beaten into paper-thin strips. It's also called gold leaf, which means that this mace is iron underneath, but essentially painted with gold on the outside, but real gold, though. And the mace is, you know, it's not solid gold, which wouldn't make a very effective weapon anyway. It would be too soft and probably too heavy. How much it's worth north of Nessus probably depends on how thin the gold was beaten and how much gold is in a Chrysus coin. Uh, Lots of things that we don't know, but it does take some of the tension off of his and Severian's relationship, since Jonas can now pay his own way. Here's something else that's interesting. Jonas was leaving Nessus when Severian met him at Piteous Gate. Where was he going? Was he going, you know, to the north to do some kind of work? Maybe he dispensed with his plans when he met Jolenta. Now he wants to get back to Jolenta as bad as Severian wants to get to Dorcas. Yeah, and that's one question I've always had. Where was he going? What was he doing? And I've even wondered before if he just had no clue. Like, he really didn't have a destination. He's just he was wandering from place wandering. to place, like 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 Kane from Kung Fu. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, walk the earth. But, that's um, right. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if he had a specific goal in mind going this way or if he really was just kind of lost and wandering because when he has his break of some sort in the antechamber that's when it seems like all of a sudden he has memories of who he was or what he was and that gives me the sense that before then he was just kind of yeah wandering Mm -hmm. without a good goal just because i haven't seen anything else that points to what he would have been doing yeah Um, he certainly doesn't seem in any hurry to get away from saltus right now Right. Yeah. No, no. I think this is a good place to provide a curiositus earthus. Hmm. Curiositas earthus. Roy C. Lackey, whom we mentioned last week, that was the second time he's come up in the podcast, actually. So this is the third. Roy was not known for his expansive theory spinning. He would often categorize puzzles and carefully critique other people's theories. But, you know, we had a little gathering, you know, over Zoom to remember Roy and Nigel Price read an earthless post that can only be described as an honest to goodness speculative theory. Roy might have objected. 
it would have been in character for him to deny it, but it's an honest curiositus earthus and a good one. He posted it in 1999, and the title is Iron Men. It goes, in Earth, Sidero tells Severian how his, that is, Sidero's kind, came to be. They started out as glorified spacesuits for sailors, becoming, as more gadgetry and circuits were added, self-aware entities capable of independent action. They are hollow because they were originally designed to house human sailors. Because they are hollow, they are lightweight. Severian calls them androids and realizes that that is what Jonas had once been. When he carried Jonas from the antechamber, he was surprised how lightweight he was and speculated that it was due to his metal parts being made of some lightweight alloy. Wrong. He was lightweight because the metal parts were hollow and the metal parts were made of iron, if not literally, at least metaphorically. In Greek mythology, Sidero was female, not male. Sidero has two separate meanings. One is starry. The other is a prefix, meaning iron. Sidero mentions two others of his kind, Hadid, which is Arabic for iron, and Hera, which is Spanish for iron. Jonas means dove, but whether this was his original name or not is unknown. Jonas is very secretive about his past. He implies that he was a crewman of a starship that crashed, the crew then scattering. Maybe so, but his name invites comparison with his biblical namesake, Jonah, who disobeyed God and took a ship for Tarshish. God sends a storm in punishment, unnecessary cargo is thrown overboard, Hathor knows about cargo, and Jonah is thrown over too as a scapegoat, where he is swallowed by the fish, thus the origin of the term Jonah for someone who is bad luck. Jonas has a lot of bad luck. Was he banished for some sin? quote unquote, by either Zadkiel or other agent of the Increate. Jonas lost his left hand. Sidero lost his right arm and hand. This has resonances with Jonah 4.11, persons that cannot discern between right hand and left hand. It took Severian a while to figure out which of Jonas's hands was the prosthetic. Further, Sidero tells Severian, we sail in and out of time, then back again. There is only one ship the captain says. That's Zadkiel is the captain. All the ships we hail between the galaxies or the suns are this ship. Does that mean just what it says? Are the Quasar, the fortunate cloud, and Zadkiel's ship the same? Honestly, Craig, I do doubt that, but I don't claim to have a lot of theories about any of those entities. But I'll go on. Is all this coincidence? I doubt it. The androids, Sidero and Jonas, have become human, whether by accident or design, in all ways that matter save biological, perhaps all too human in the Nietzschean sense. Okay, so now Roy seems to be saying Jonas was originally an android like Sidero is, but you know, on investigation, he's saying he's an android of the type that is elsewhere mentioned on Earth of the New Sun in chapter 13. And it says, Sidero had been joined by two slender automatons, such creatures as I believe Jonas must have once been. But, you know, the theorizing part, to my mind, at least in his original post, was the implication that the fortunate cloud was Zadkiel as well. So what do you think of that, Craig? Well, first of all, that one thing we just said was actually is a quote that Severian says in the text that the automatons 
were such creatures as I believe Jonas must once have been, right? That's, that's right. Severian saying that, not Roy, not us. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so just to be, just to be clear in case, because I know there's still, when I was looking up on the earth and Reddit, people were still arguing about sort of what Jonas was originally, but that's, that's one thing that Severian just flat out says. Now, granted, mm-hmm. he says, as I believe Jonas must once have been. So he doesn't say he knows exactly sure, for sure, but no. With the idea that the androids are lighter for all kinds of reasons, I mean, even here that the androids are slender, or the automatons are slender Mm -hmm. in some way, yeah. Uh, The idea that they're some kind of creature that developed, you know, started off as something that was meant to serve people, but then got more complicated over time, that to me is still really important to what Jonas is, because Jonas is still something like an android that's still developing over time right maybe in a haphazard way because he's got human parts meshed onto him but the story that Sidero tells about robots coming from like being things that were built by humans and over time gained awareness Jonas still fits in with that even if Jonas is not exactly a you know he's not a Gundam armor. <laughs> is the, well, maybe he's later than that, right? Maybe yeah, Sidero's closer. Like, maybe he's an older form, actually. Right, right. That's kind of what it seems like. Like Sidero's much more of an, an older kind. Yeah. Um, oh, and the other thing too about the mixing up the right and the left hands. That's totally right because one suggestion and one really cool part of that chapter is that when Severian does slip inside Sidero, it's not just that he's wearing him, but actually their awarenesses get mixed up. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's it's such a really weird passage to read the first time because literally Severian's talking about my arm hitting myself. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, <laughs> Severian trying to fight him to get him out of him. But they're literally left and right hands of both sides get mixed up because nobody yeah. knows who's who. So anyway, that just carries that even further. Anyway. Um, but yeah, the bit about the ship, that's always bugged me mm. um, because I don't think it's right. I don't think that all ships are Zadkiel. I feel like it has to be more metaphorical and metaphorically there's all kinds of reasons why I think that's cool, especially when you talk about, traveling in time and the way that going back and forth can maybe have you meet different versions of yourself. And so once you get on these ships, you're kind of taken out of your regular life. And there's ways that you can get all mixed up, just like we've talked about Gunny and Burgundifora getting mixed up and the way that Severian gets all kind of mixed up with his past and future. So in that sense, these timelines cross and you can't really distinguish them anywhere. But that doesn't mean that they're absolutely identical and that there's only one ship going back and forth. Yeah. I mean, he might've said that when we, all the ships of this type that we meet are, are Zadkiel. That that could be possible as well, but. There's one thing I know you're going to mention in a second too, but um, where Jonah says right here, when he talks about how there wasn't basically the landing apparatus or right. the base docks or whatever that they needed um, to land. And so the ship crashes, at least I think that's what he's describing. Yeah. So it's somehow totally the yeah. ship had to crash and he was injured in there. Well, Zadkiel's ship doesn't need to land. Yeah. yeah. And that would also mean that that was the end of Zadkiel. Um, if that was the ship. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so there's all kinds of problems then with that. Um, but to go back to sort of the bigger point, I think about androids, and we can talk more about Jonas in particular, but, whatever kind of thing an android is it's something that is always seen as in process and developing over time and so it's not 
like I always think about the differences that when Severian and Sidero also had that conversation about morality, the morality that robots seem to have is also, I can't decide if that's more advanced or not. Like the idea that we can do the wrong thing, but we can't rationalize it. Like, is that better or not? Like you, you even mentioned it's, it's psychotic in, in certain ways yeah. that it, it, I don't know. Or like, like, but I like that. I, that idea that there are certain creatures that are human. And then there are certain creatures that are maybe on their way to being fully sold. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, or whatever it means to be human, but that are still a mix of, of different things and in process. And I feel like that sort of halfway existence is really important to who and what Jonas eventually is. And also think about the androids on Zadkiel is that it's a natural presumption to think that these androids are artifacts of the ship itself, that, you know, they were built there, they developed there, Mm -hmm. they're there to work. But, you know, they could have been hired from particular times, just like the sailors are, right? Right. And Syriaca tells the story about the AIs and the robots who went off and had their own kind of Mm -hmm. evolution apart from things who knows if Sidero and other things, I mean, the way Sidero tells the story though, it's, it's like we were specifically suits for human beings. Like we were specifically tools of humans at first. And then over time we became more independent. Um, so maybe, yeah, he is an earlier version of things. And then, you know, the Terminators got better <laughs> over time. And <laughs> oh, they, wonderful. They that always some... works out well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, about the ship though. Yeah. I don't think they are one ship. But do you think that's where Roy, Roy was going with that? Was, was saying that they? Really- I feel like that's kind. Of, there's a there's. He kind of got lost, and uh, I think you know in the in the middle of defending uh, his position. So it's a little hard to say. Um, you know, that's the th- thing about the Earthless is that people's perspective and point changes over time without really acknowledging that. Right. But I think his first post, he was kind of suggesting that maybe Jonas was Sidero and that he was just, you know, retrofitted and changed over time. Um, Then later he brings up a a quote about Severian seeing Sidero with the two slender automatons, such creatures as I believe Jonas must have once been. And then, you know, there's an idea, okay, well, no, they're not the exact same kind, but they are similar, the same sort. Right. I'm not convinced, for instance, that Jonas came from Zadkiel, for starters. I think it's just as possible that he was on a ship like Hathor's, apparently, the people who got lost between the stars for long periods of time in relative travel. Mm-hmm. And, got, and didn't find their way back. And when they finally got back, it was, you know, generations, hundreds, thousands of years later. Right. And we do know that there are other kinds of ships out there. One right. named the Whirl, at the very least. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> so one other thing, just speaking about the ships that I feel like we're almost obligated to bring this up. I don't know. Did you watch WandaVision? Did yeah, you, yeah. 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 Okay. So there's the scene where... Vision is talking to new killer version Vision, right? Mm-hmm. And they bring up the old philosophical problem of the ship of Theseus mm-hmm. about at when does... Oh, what was the joke that, you know, that my first encounter with that parable, it was, I forget which the name of the, the comedian, he says, 
I've got this axe. He was a, he was a juggler. He says, uh-huh. so I've got this axe first belonged to George Washington. I've had to replace the handle and the head. <laughs> yep. But yeah, so the ship of Theseus issue is that if you're out on a ship and you have to make repairs to the ship, right, you replace one plank with a new piece of wood, but you carry that on forever. And eventually every little piece has to get replaced in some way. Well, then in what sense is it still the same ship after all of that? And that's kind of the question that Jonas has to face with himself, right? But it's Mm -hmm. also something I wonder about. Is that somehow connected to all these different ships? Or is that something when when Sidero is talking about how parts are getting added? Like at what point did they become self-aware and, you know, moral agents, as it were, like people, um, as opposed to just machine? Is there a similar kind of point where that happens or is there not? I mean, that's that's sort of the thought experiment of the ship of Theseus is there's no solution necessarily to it that satisfies everybody it just creates that question of what point does something become something totally different and that could be just with the same thing but also with types anyway i just thought that since that came up in wandavision and (laughs) it seems to really fit for jonas but it you know it it does fit for robots and and talking Mm -hmm. about physical identity and all that kind of thing too so the old uh, Shadowrun game actually figured it out really well because there was actually you had a you had a stat <laughs> like the more the more parts you replaced your I forget what it was called, but the stat went up or down or something mm-hmm. based on how many false points you had. And then after at a certain point, you were either a totally different person or you had to become some different kind of class or character <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Any, anyway, it's the only, only good segue after that. That's one. right. <laughs> Severian and Jonas are back at the end. The fair is still going on even at this early morning hour. Marwenna and the cattle rustler were executed yesterday, and Severian is expected to execute Barnock today. But if Severian ever gave Barnock his pre-execution interview, Severian doesn't describe it. Maybe he expected to after supper, but he got distracted from the letter. At the room, Jonas offers to share the gilded mace, the you know the, the the money from it, with Severian because you know he has a strong sense of fair play or camaraderie. But Severian turns it down. Severian has enough money, and he'll be glad to not feel like Jonas is obligated to him. That they can be you know real friends, I guess. Also, Jonas's generosity and trust is humiliating to Severian given that he knows he's hiding the claw from Jonas because he doesn't completely trust him. Right. One other difference about that, though, is that it could represent something different that we were talking about. Why does Jonas just hang out with Severian this whole time? Why does he sort of easily fall into a serving position? Why does he maybe not have plans of his own? And also the same thing here where he's got some stuff and his immediate thing is like, okay, well, let's share it. And Mm -hmm. so there's this almost kind of built in, sense of unselfishness that I don't know if that's supposed to be, I mean, you mentioned he doesn't, he's not following Asimov's rules here, but maybe there's something about being a servant or being a support figure that Mm -hmm. is into him that could be, so that could be one place for Severian sort of misunderstanding why Jonas has that instinct and it could be something else. Well, if you're a robot that's designed to work as a member of a crew, I guess it makes sense to have a natural, you know, team bonding inclinations maybe so so anyway severian feels bound by honor to confess the whole thing but 
acting according to honor first is not Severian's way. He just hides it in his boot, and Jonas is going to wrap the mace up in a rag tomorrow when he takes it around and gets offers on it. Okay, so Severian sleeps until noon. Jonas is also asleep when he wakes up because Robot Jonas sleeps. Mm -hmm. It's a really strange thing, and I think that his head must be one of the parts they attached after the crash. And if Jonas is Miles and he has Miles' face, that would explain how Severian somehow knew Jonas was there listening when he was talking to Miles. Yeah, that that was one thing that was never clear to me. Like he thinks that Miles is Jonas, but he never specifically says that mm-hmm. Miles looks exactly like Jonas. And there, we never get enough detail to know if like does Jonas's face look kind of mangled or messed up somehow. Right. He never talks about like intense scarring or he doesn't give any careful details about the way he looks the first thing severian does is check his boot to make sure that the claw is still there because he's so full of trust when severian (laughs) isn't obsessing over his claw he's obsessing over his sword and i think i've mentioned that the claw and the sword are somehow thematically connected he gets them both within 24 hours they're both destroyed almost simultaneously Uh, did i give the hamlet's mill reason for why this is necessary? I'm sure I did. It's the same reason Latro has a curved sword, why the sun in the tail of the student of the sun has a curved blade, why Hermes and Perseus did, why Kronos carries a scythe, why Heimdall and Roland carried uh, curved horns. Roland's was made from an elephant's tusk. Anyway, Jonas asks Severian to wake him up when he did, which suggests Jonas is the more sound sleeper of the two. He wants to find a jeweler to make an offer for his mace. He's not sure whether he'll sell it yet, but he wants to at least, you know, see what he can negotiate for it. He asks Severian if he wants to come and, you know, because Severian is his buddy. But Severian says that, you know, they have to get lunch and as soon as they finish, they'll be due to remove Barnock's head. Severian's cloak was torn last night. His boots are still damp. Jonas suggests getting one of the hotel maids to stitch it. So as they eat, the innkeeper's wife sews his cloak, and Severian explains all of what happened in the cavern. Actually, he says, under the hill, which calls to mind something from Tolkien or Mm -hmm. the very people who live under the hills. Yep. He also describes the steps, quote, that he heard far below ground. But he doesn't say so. But when he says all that happens, he means everything, even the bit about the claw. Right, which is kind of weird because he just pointed out, you know, a couple paragraphs ago that he was still keeping the claw from mm-hmm. Jonas. Right. But I don't know, maybe the fact that it's still there and he wakes up and Jonas hasn't tried to steal it from him, maybe that was not a test or something, but maybe right. that changed his mind, yeah. So after it's all told, Jonas says, you're a strange man. <laughs> <laughs> Safarian replies that Jonas is the more strange one. That he doesn't want people to know, but he's some kind of foreigner, which for a nation at war, you'd think that would be an accusation. But Mm -hmm. I don't know what constitutes a foreigner in Severian's mind. His statement implies he's encountered, quote, foreigners, you know, so-called before. At the accusation of being a foreigner, Jonas just smiles and says, a cacogen? That is, you know, a foreigner from another planet. But Mm -hmm. uh, Severian clarifies No, an outlander. Jonas starts to deny it, but then he nods and he says, yeah, well, I suppose I am. But you, 
you have this talisman that lets you command nightmares and you have discovered a hoard of silver. Yet you talk about it to me as someone else might talk about the weather. And that sounds like something Agia said to Severian at one point. <laughs> so what do you make of that distinction between a Kakajin and an Outlander? Well, he he just means you're not from around here, I think. But that's what Severian means, yeah. I was wondering, because a Kakajin, it means someone who is from off-world, right? Like that's, right. We, we've sort of taken it that it means an alien or has at least some kind of non-Earth blood like whether it's right. actually alien or maybe you know like humans who lived on another planet forever and that's why they're taller because it had less gravity who knows something like that but an outlander i didn't know like was that a name for a sailor or does that just mean any kind of foreigner um yeah. you know like another earth-based foreigner because i i don't know like they throw those terms around like they <laughs> know exactly what it means well, but that's the problem with this book is that it's I not don't. a book about the future. It's a book from the future. And now right. you're left to speculate. So I don't know. I don't have a solid yeah. clue. I When he says Outlander, though, I was wondering if for him that means like a sailor, like something mm -hmm. about like some kind of something that. Something is, away from the land. You were, you're focusing on the land. Maybe? Right. That was part of it because it's it specifically mentions land, but also just because we've already heard the term Kakajin mean something alien, but then Outlander is this other weird category that might mean something from off earth, but not necessarily an alien. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I mean, the fact that he corrects him, he, he differentiates Kakajin for, and, and specifies, I mean, an Outlander. Mm -hmm. I think he must mean, you know, an earth person from some place on earth like a like a different country yeah. yeah i mean we don't we don't know what kind of knowledge severian has of world geography beyond asia really right because then when jonas answers his answers yeah i suppose i am so it's the kind of thing where he's like yeah i guess technically i fit the category you're right i'm about. not a kakajin but i am an outlander i am from someplace else right yeah. and i guess maybe the one way you could take that is yeah he's maybe from another time right like if right. he's if yeah, he is one too. of the ship people, then yeah, technically I'm from a different land. Yeah, maybe I'm, yeah, to, he first to say, no, I'm not from someplace else because I'm from here. And yeah. he says, wait a minute. No, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I've often thought about the fact that getting older, you're literally, literally feel like you're walking around people who are from another country. They've grown mm -hmm. up in another country. They've grown up in another world yeah. all together. Yeah. Time is a is a home you can't ever go back to. Yeah. So um, Severian does at least agree that the claw is strange, but he says that doesn't make him strange. Severian explains why it would finally make sense to tell Jonas about the claw. He says, why shouldn't I talk to you about it? If I were to steal your gold, I could sell it and spend money. But I don't think things would go well for someone who stole the claw. <laughs> and then he explains the way Agia stole the claw from the Pellerine's tent. He he does this to forestall, you know, endless fights in the Earthless. So I thank him for doing that. <laughs> she stuck it in his saber tash to get it out of the tent and presumably planned to reclaim it after Agilus killed him. So she would have his sword, his cloak, and the claw. But if he got caught with the claw in the tent, only Severian would be blamed. And he finally explained explicitly that the Pellerines destroyed their tent because they'd lost the claw. 
And here we are at chapter eight in the next volume, 13 chapters later, and we're finally getting an explanation, which is better than a lot of the mysteries in this book. I was going to say, at least we are getting one. Yes. Clearly laid out and it makes sense. Right. Then he thinks about the Damacella. He wonders whether some people can read your thoughts. And Severian says, well, of course they can. And he might know of some very practical instances of that. In fact, if Jonas can read thoughts some, it puts that discussion of Morwenna's guilt in a whole new light. But Severian says that Gurlo liked the idea, but Palamon wouldn't hear of it. But Severian thinks the Domicella could read people's thoughts a little. And now we get to it. Severian is going to talk about that thing in the mind, the thing rattling its chains, if Baldander's understanding was correct when he was dreaming about it. But the thing, as far as Severian is concerned, that made the steps, that's what he sees it as. So he wants Jonas's opinion. The first thing we know is that while Severian feels, looking back on it as autark, that he can guess what it is, he doesn't know for a fact what it is. And that suggests that whatever it is, it isn't put there by the autark. The autark doesn't know what it is, or maybe even that it's there. That's the first piece of the puzzle. Next, I don't have all the answers, but I think it matters when Severian talks about the thing under the mountain that he wants to talk about Erebus and Abaya as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he says, Everyone knows about Erebus and Abaya and the other things in the sea who'll come to land someday. Nevertheless, I think you know more about them than most of the rest of us. Jonas's face, which had been so open before, was closed and guarded now. And why do you think that? Because you've been a sailor, and because of the story about the beans, the story you told at the gate. You must have seen my brown book when I was reading it upstairs. It tells all the secrets of the world, or at least what various mages have said they were. I haven't read it all or even half of it, though Thecla and I used to read an entry every few days and spend the time between readings arguing about it. Okay, well, it's settled. The Book of the New Sun is definitely in the brown book. (laughs) All that arguing. Okay. But I've noticed that all the explanations in that book are simple and seemingly childish. And Jonas says, like my story? And I nodded. Your story might have come out of the book. When I first carried it to Thecla, I supposed it was intended for children or for adults who enjoy childish things. But when we had talked about some of the thoughts in it, I understood that they had to be expressed in that way or they couldn't be expressed at all. If the writer had wanted to describe a new way to make wine or the best way to make love, he could have used complex and accurate language. But in the book he really wrote, he had to say, in the beginning was only the hexameron, or it's not to see the icon standing still, but to see the still standing. The hexameron are the six days when God created the world. I had no idea before I read this book that there was a specific word for that. In other words, Severian's statement is a summary of the first chapter of Genesis that starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then goes on to describe the six days of creation. Mm -hmm. Then Severian continues, the thing I heard underground, was that one of them? I didn't see it, Jonas rose. I'm going out now to sell the mace, but before I go, I'm going to tell you what all housewives sooner or later tell their husbands. Before you ask more questions, think about whether you really want to know the answers. First of all, Jonas, yes, I do want to know the answer. (laughs) But second of all, 
his response maybe implies that the answer to what the thing is is very personally connected to Severian in some way. I don't know why he would think that or know that it is. Right. And it's because the implication is, you know, you're going to find out something that you don't would rather not know. Yeah. Right. Would rather not know, but that actually could cause you pain and could right. cause you fear or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So Severian has one more question. He says, when we were going through the wall, you said the things we saw in there were soldiers, and you implied they had been stationed there to resist Abaya and the others. I'll note that Jonas does not attempt to disabuse Severian of this association between the black beans of the woman and the Megatherians. I think we ought to treat that as a confirmation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how I read it. So Severian says that he has one more question, and that's it. And here it is. One, are the man-apes and the soldiers of the same kind? Two, if they are, what good can human-sized fighters do when their opponents are as large as mountains? And three, why didn't the old autarchs use human soldiers? And Jonas notes that while Severian promised to ask only one more question and no more, this is three questions. But he says that he can only answer number two with certainty. And he's going to guess at the others. Also, for whatever reason, Jonas tells Severian that this is the last answer he's going to give to Severian on any questions about the Megatherians and the Commonwealth's methods to resist them. Now, why didn't the Autark use human soldiers? This is his guess. Before there was an Autark, there were Autarks of a different type, and they were called something else. How, for example, was Typhon different from an Autark? I'm going to take a shot at this. I suppose he probably had to rely on the submission of a barony of some kind. The Autark does not seem to make an attempt at top-down leadership of the Commonwealth. He truly rules himself, self-rules. Also, he's a complete military dictator. He has weapons and support from the Usadis. And while he uses commoners and upper classes and exultants to serve in his army, he doesn't really need them. He has beast soldiers. Theoretically, he could make more if he needed to. And he doesn't even have the approval of the exultant class. So that's my guess. That's my guess about why they were different. And that could be. And that also kind of makes sense with having Vodalus then as, you know, it's like, let's make a sort of opposition to gather everybody who really is kind of against me. And then they're easy to take care mm-hmm. of and notice because they're all one group, but <laughs> it's not a real threat. I mean, it, it kind of yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So those old rulers did use human soldiers, as you know, because those rulers are, in a sense, our rulers. Mm-hmm. But the rulers at the time were hated by the populace, which I read as the common people. That's why he calls them their rulers, plural. And based on something I once heard Wolf say about representative republics, I could also include that form as well. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff about, I mean, there's even an interview, I think, somewhere, right, where he says, um, he talks about how you have democracy and republic. Forms of oh, government oh, I think are, you're probably reminding some of that's that what, what we were I, I was at. It wasn't really a panel because it was only Wolf and there wasn't a moderator and he was just walking around. But <laughs> somebody asked him about his politics and mm-hmm. he kind of paused and took a break. And, you know, because he knows his reputation as being some big right wing 
uh, science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And he said, the form of government that I favor is democracy. America is not a democracy. We are a republic. And that means that every so often we choose people to rule over us. And when we have, you can be sure they know it. <laughs> Which is, I like that a lot. I mean, I don't necessarily <laughs> agree with every part of it, but I, I think it's smart. Yeah, yeah. I'll say this, it's often right. <laughs> it's yeah. yeah, what's the, the Churchill thing that oh, democracy, democracy is? is the worst form except for the, all the other. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, uh, they also had at some point super intelligent animals. And Jonas supposes that they might have also taken people and added animalistic upgrades to them and maybe made them more animalistic in disposition too. And these types of warriors were more loyal because the people who hated the rulers hated these soldiers more, which were in effect creations of the rulers. And I'm sure they just had a natural disgust for them anyway. And that's probably the main thing. I wonder if that's why the uh, Taluses have the big horned faces on the world in Long Sun. Were they, yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, that kind of fits the description, the way that the they're, he always describes yeah. their faces as so mean and demonic and horned and all this kind of thing. It's similar to the kinds of things that he says he, huh. or horrors yeah, and nightmares yeah. that he sees in the huh. wall. Now so, I have to think about that. Hmm. So the rulers could get the beast soldiers to do things that they could never ask human soldiers to do. Jonas actually says that they could be made to endure things that human soldiers would not. And that could mean that they were pushed more cruelly, but it could also mean commanding them to level a town Mm -hmm. without concern that they'd resist. So Jonas says that may have been why they were used in the wall, or there may be some other explanations entirely. So that's a guess. Right. That was all a guess. It's a thing to remember. It's not a not a full-on historical explanation, but it gets Right. Now, Jonas moves on to the first question. Are the man-ape soldiers of the same kind as the beast soldiers in the wall? He seems to find this one more touchy because he pauses a bit and he walks to the window looking out as he talks. He says, um, I don't know whether your man-apes are of the same kind of hybrid as the beast soldiers. The one I saw looked quite human to me, except for his pelt, that's his fur. So I would be inclined to agree with you that they are human beings who have undergone some change in their essential nature as a result of life in the mines and their contact with the relics of the city buried there. By relics, I suppose he could mean fissionable material and such. And he says, Earth is very old now. It's very old, and no doubt there have been many treasures hidden in bygone times. Gold and silver do not alter, but their guardians can suffer metamorphoses stranger than those that turn grapes to wine and sand to pearls. With this one, part of the thing I wonder is if Jonas, uh, that maybe Jonas gets up and walks to the window because here he's not so much worried about bothering Severian, but maybe because here something is bothering him. And the reason I wonder about this is because I still wonder how much does Jonas really know about himself? Because when he has the breakdown in the antechamber, it's kind of ambiguous over what exactly is going on. Um, Like it seems kind of like he's all of a sudden had clarity over 
either what he is or how far away from home he is. And it's, it's too much for him to deal with, but I've always taken it too, as maybe it's something about his human personality and his robot personality or fighting somehow. I don't know. I mean, that's just one, one thing, but the reason I bring that up here is because when he's talking about humans possibly changing over time and becoming something else, I really wonder if this is Jonah saying that he maybe has seen part of the future and there's humans and maybe even robots in his sense can evolve into different things. I mean, Sidero mm-hmm. and the others could suggest that. And so maybe what he's wondering here is, I mean, th- this is a very complex set of, of ifs, but is he starting to worry about maybe the fact that maybe he's de-evolved somehow? Like if he's getting mm. more human, is he becoming a little bit more like like the mix of human and animal and the mix of robot and human is something that's a little less somehow? Um, I and, and I don't know. I mean, that would take things down a certain path, but it's just a weird part here for him to be really disturbed by that because when he, like you said, he finds this one touchier. But it doesn't really make sense why, because the answers he gives are just like, yeah, you know, maybe people change or or humans could change or evolve or devolve in some way over time. But I don't really have any other real direct sense in this text about why that would be so touchy for him. It would bug him. Yeah, well, you know, what you what you say there actually adds a bit of irony to my understanding of why he's kind of approaching this carefully. I think he's looking at humanity and they're walking around in the remains Mm -hmm. of past civilizations. And they just assume that they are just like these people that they left behind, but he's looking at them and it's as if that a modern person has is assuming that he's really just like a Neanderthal or something. Yeah. I I see where you're going. Yeah. But the irony in that. is that he himself is changed. He himself is not what he was before. Um, In The Wizard Knight, there is a cat that was imbued with an eternal elemental soul by a witch. Mm -hmm. And he makes a point that when she did that, uh, there was a new being that was created. And it's fully cat and it's fully elemental And one day the cat will die and then it'll become an elemental again. But at the moment, it's a new being and a new creation. And in a sense, that's, I think, what Jonas is. And, you know, while he's kind of looking down at the on the foolishness of the people in that he walks among uh, Severian, who assumes that, you know, well, he's the same. He's a man, Mm -hmm. just like the long history of men. And Jonas is saying, well, you know. Uh, depends on how you define it. Yeah. And it could be like, you're a little closer to those man apes than you realize. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in fact, this is the point. Severian asks that very question. He says, but we outside, we endure dark each night and the treasures that are carried up from the mines are brought to us. Why haven't we changed too? And Jonas doesn't answer the question. Remember, Severian promised he wouldn't ask anymore. So he only looks at Severian and then looks away. And in that look, Severian picks up on the answer. They have changed. 
Uh, remember that Severian has said that Jonas looks, you know, not just old, but ancient to him, like a man from an old painting or photo that he saw in the picture gallery. Right, right. Now for question number two, the one that Jonas doesn't have to guess at. What use are human-sized fighters against beings as large as mountains? And this, by the way, is such a typical wolf thing where it's like there are questions going on and the one that he's going to answer is the more technical, right? <laughs> like, like not the one that explains <laughs> things, but the one that gets into like engineer details or something. So, you know. so he says, you were correct when you said Erebus and Abaya are as great as mountains. And I admit that I was surprised you knew it. Most people lack the imagination to conceive of anything so large and think them no bigger than houses or ships. Their actual size is so great that while they remain on this world, they can never leave the water. Their own weight would crush them. You mustn't think of them battering at the wall with their fists or tossing boulders about. But by their thoughts, they enlist servants, and they fling them against all rules that rival their own. Now, I'm going to say here that if you haven't read An Evil Guest, Wolf drills into this alien monstrosity versus humanity even more. (laughs) The different bureaucracies of America are actually captured or working hand in glove with aliens that are everywhere on earth and particularly with the massive lovecraftian being at the bottom of the ocean who's lived there for hundreds of thousands of years and considers earth more his home than humanity's so anyway jonas leaves now because jonas is a sailor it's always assumed that his past allegiances are either to ancient humans long dead or to the asadis But what if Jonas has spent time in league with Erebus or Abaya? And that's why he doesn't want Severian prying into what he knows about them. I mean, other than that, I can't imagine why he's so closed-mouthed about what he knows. That's really interesting. And, yeah, it puts a different spin on what it is. And maybe, you know, my problem with why does Jonas have such a problem in the antechamber, like what, what is it that kind of breaks him? Hmm, maybe there's yeah. something to do with that. Some kind of guilt or something. I don't know. Right. Huh? Okay. I've got so many more questions about Jonas. <laughs> okay. Well, if you thought that was risky, now we're moving into some really dangerous territory. Right? <laughs> Severian sits at the table and ponders the most bewildering thing that he can do for us readers. He's going to think about that thing under the mind. So first, he thinks about his dream that he had in Baldender's bed way back in chapter 15, Shadow of the Torturer. Jonas's words about the Megatherians being so big they can't leave the water, and he remembers that the Undyne told him that, quote, the land could not hold us. So this is straightforward, but it's going to get weird. And Severian alerts us that it's going to get weird. Now I'm coming to a part of my story where I cannot help but write of something I have largely avoided mentioning before. And he starts with his memory. There's no reason to read it again here. I think we did it earlier when we were puzzling over his memory. But, you know, We don't need a reason to reread, so I think we should. (laughs) So, you that read it cannot but have noticed that I have not scrupled to recount in great detail things that transpired years ago, and to give the very words of those who spoke to me and the very words with which I replied, 
and you must have thought this only a conventional device I had adopted to make my story flow more smoothly. The truth is that I am one of those who are cursed with what is called perfect recollection. We cannot, as I have sometimes heard foolishly alleged, remember everything. I cannot recall the ordering of the books on the shelves in the library of Master Olton, for example. But I can remember more than many would credit. The position of each object on a table I walked past when I was a child, and even that I've recalled some scene to mine previously, and how that remembered incident differed from the memory of it I have now. <laughs> now, I've made a lot of that last sentence. Yeah, it, it drove me batty for years. It, well, it seems to blow a hole right through the very idea of mm -hmm. memory. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And now I think I have an answer for it. My apologies to those who disagree. But now that I have an explanation for the parsing of that sentence, I think I can propose a reason for why Severian says it here and why he talks about his memory at all here, where he's thinking about the Megatherians and Baldander's dream, the dream of a man who wants to become a Megatherian. Yeah. It was my power of recollection that made me the favorite pupil of Master Palamon, and so I suppose it can be blamed for the existence of this narrative, for if he had not favored me, I would not have been sent to Thrax bearing his sword. Now, this is an interesting factoid we haven't gotten before. The sword was not just an artifact of the guild that Palamon handed over with his authority as master. It was his own sword. Seems like. Okay. Some say this power is linked to weak judgment. Of that, I am no judge. But it has another danger, one I've encountered many times. When I cast my mind into the past, as I'm doing now, and as I did then when I sought to recall my dream, I remember it so well that I seem to move again in the bygone day. A day old new and unchanged each time I draw it to the surface of my mind, its eidolons as real as I. I can even now close my eyes and walk into Thecla's cell as I did one winter evening, and soon my fingers will feel the heat of her garment while the perfume of her person fills my nostrils, like the perfume of lilies warmed before a fire. I lift her gown from her and embrace that ivory body, feeling her nipples pressed to my face. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah. Here's the first time the Zavarian finally admits that he and Thecla were not just teasing one another. They were right. actually carnally intimate. And I guess that dot, 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 that ellipsis is a signal that quite a while has occurred between Zavarian writing that sentence and the next one. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, and also, this is we should point out that this is the one place where sometimes people will say that, ah, see, Severian does lie because he says that he never did anything before, but he did here. But actually, if you look at what exactly he says, yeah. It, he never claimed they never did anything. He right. just let, brought, left that out. Yeah. So, so he says, you see, it's very easy to waste hours and days in such rememberings. And sometimes I fall so deeply into them that I am drugged and drunken. So it was now. I suppose by now he means as he sat at the table after Jonas mm -hmm. left. The footfalls I had heard in the Manape's cavern still echoed in my mind. And seeking some explanation, I returned to my dream, certain now that I knew from whom it had come, and hoping it had revealed more than its shaper apprehended. Again, I bestride the mitered, leather-winged steed. Pelicans fly below us with stiffly formal strokes, and gulls wheel and keen. Again I fall, tumbling through the abyss of air, whistling toward the sea, yet suspended for a time between wave and cloud. I arch my body, bring down my head, let my legs trail behind me like a banner, and so cleave the water 
and see floating in clear azure the head with hair of snakes and the many-headed beast, and then the swirling sand garden far below. What was that, Craig? What? What? Sand garden? (laughs) The bottom of the ocean? So I think I've talked to you about this. It's not on mic, then off. I've always puzzled over the meaning of why the sand garden had that effect on Severian. And only on this reread do I think I understand. When he plucked the thorn, he was standing on the beach. And the desert of the sand garden is not a desert. It's the bottom of the ocean. In the comments a few episodes ago, I proposed that the rooms of the botanic garden were library resources. They allowed the Autark and Neri to confer with other powers of Earth. The Garden of Endless Sleep is the room for the Kamean resource. And now I don't know what the purpose of all the other rooms are, but I suggest the purpose of the sand garden is to confer with Abaya and maybe others. But with this understanding that the sand garden, you know, let's check out the rest. The giantesses lift arms like the trunks of sycamores, each finger tipped with an amaranthine talon. Okay, amaranthine. That is a good word. Literally, it means like an amaranth. The word amaranth is Greek for undying flower because the amaranth's blossoms don't fade. They keep their looks. They keep their magenta reddish color. Even if the plant itself dies, sometimes it's called love lies bleeding, which is a really good name for a flower. (laughs) In Paradise Lost, amaranths shade the fountain of life in the Garden of Eden. So the amaranthine nails of the undines can refer to the pinkish coloring, like the eyes, the undines, because I guess, you know, they're a kind of albino. And it can also refer to their immortal nature that they gain from constantly growing. And suddenly, Severian says he cued to the purpose of this dream. Then very suddenly, I had been blind before understood why it was that Abaya had sent me this dream, and had sought to enlist me in the great and final war of Earth. But now the tyranny of memory overwhelmed my will, though I could see the titan odalisks, Odalisks are concubines in a harem. Though I could see the titan odalisks in their garden and knew them to be no more than dream stuff recalled, I couldn't escape from their fascination in the memory of the dream. Hands gripped me like a doll, and as I dandled thus between the meretrices of Abaya... Uh, meretrices is plural form for meretrix, a prostitute. Whores of Abaya. And as I dandled thus between, is dandled or dangled? I think it's is dandled. It dandled. Okay. Just... <laughs> uh, past tense of dandle. It means to move a small child up and down on the knees. Oh. <laughs> the arms in a playful way. Okay. So, it's like bouncing your yeah. baby. And as I dandled thus between the meretrices of Abaya, I was lifted from my broad arm chair in the Inn of Saltus. Yet still, for perhaps a hundred heartbeats more, I could not rid my mind of the sea and its green-haired women. Yeah. Okay. And he's, of course, being picked up by an abducted. Yeah. All right. We have three things going on here. A conversation about the thing under the mine. Severian's memory of his dream in Baldander's bed. And details of his perfection of his memory. So great that he even remembers things when he remembered them different before. (laughs) (laughs) And 
and an understanding that it was related to Abaya. It's not just a dream, though. When he's flying over the ocean, the wing being told them, you dream, but if you were to wake from your waking, I would be there. <laughs> okay, thanks. And of course, that long discourse on Severian's memory, including the notation that he can even remember how that remembered incidents differed from the memory of it that he currently has. So I puzzled over that phrase and I puzzled over it. And now I understand. And as you put it, Craig, that Severian's soul is stretched between two timelines. He can remember parts of the life of the first Severian, whose life was different in some significant ways. And Severian says he can guess at the time of this writing what the thing in the mine is. He says it at the end of chapter six, what creature it was we had called from the roots of the continent, I think I now know. But I did not know then, and I did not know whether it was the roaring of the man-apes or the light of the claw or some other cause that had waked it. So that he has to guess, like I say, suggests that this is not information that the old autark had. This is information that can only be gleaned from other sources. And so, based on the confluence of elements in this passage, I propose, you can play the music if you wish. <laughs> Curiositas Urthus. I propose he knows of it from elements in his memory. I propose that the first Severian, before becoming Autark, had much more traffic with Abaya than our Severian has. The dream of flying over the ocean was a memory, as I've already proposed. The first Severian flew there. There's a passage in Sword of Lictor that causes me to believe the first Severian did utilize those pterodactyl things, and he did consort with Abaya's minions. And they propose that he kill Bald Anders, and unlike this timeline, he did it. Now, for that thing itself, is something Severian can deduce. And in the antechamber at the House Absolute, he doubles down on the belief that it is the claw itself that waked it. And that does seem believable. So, who has such a connection to the claw? Only Severian himself. It is, after all, his blood that gives the common thorn its power. So I'll take a guess. Imagine an equester branching of Severian that cut a deal with Abaya to become a monstrosity for eternal life and was eventually defeated and chained beneath the mine. Who else then by the first Severian? Baldander's recounting of his dream does imply something is chained down there. And the fact that Apu Punchau is Severian himself suggests in that fact alone that he could easily encounter himself over and over again in other forms. Now, Craig, I realize I'm beginning to look like a one-trick pony. <laughs> I've already suggested that Haythor could be another Severian. But, you know, it's not like I declare every mysterious being to be our protagonist just because <laughs> he has an unexplained past. I don't do that with Talos. I don't do that with Bald Anders. Uh, actually, I did mull over that idea for a while. But I don't do that with Agalus. Hmm. Well, well, I don't do that with Talos. And, uh, and now we've come to the end of this chapter. Oh, I should also give you a, you can jump in if you want to. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm intrigued by this one. That's, <laughs> that's really cool. 
the idea that that's some giant Severian who went down a Baldander's path. I just have all of these different <laughs> threads. I'm just following them all at once. <laughs> but that's interesting. Um, it's sort of like an alternate path that he took. Um, hmm. So then Jonas's discomfort was, does Jonas live through different, not just times, but different things? Like, does he have some sense that, is this the first time he's met Severian? That's yeah. a good question. I mean, he does, he suddenly becomes friends so quickly. Yeah. yeah. And he does seem weirded out by things we don't really know. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I admit that's that one, there is some stretchiness to get there, but that's really interesting because the way that I'm kind of playing that out in my head right now, that, that would maybe make Jonas make more sense in certain ways. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, I'll tell you what. Anyone who can come up with an explanation of the play that explains that thing, that's the one I'm going for. So, <laughs> and so now we've come to the end of the chapter where the actual cultulari make their appearance. As Severian is lost in memory, aware of nothing else, the Baudelari show up to spirit him away. But we have their conversation recorded as they stood over him, seated at the table. One says, he sleeps. And the other one says, but his eyes are open. And then a third voice Shall we bring the sword? He says, bring it. There may be work for it. And then Severian comes out of his reverie. At, he says, the titan is faded, and his abductors are dressed in deerskin and rough wool. They're leading him from either side, while a third puts a dagger, a dirk, he calls it, at Severian's throat. The guy on his right has the sword. He's the guy with the black beard who helped break open Barnock's house. And maybe that's why Barnack was so sure Vodalus would come for him. Now, at the start of this chapter, I understood they were sitting in the inn's parlor. And I suppose we are now to understand that the parlor is a separate private room. And I suppose we're also to understand that the innkeeper's wife has finished with Severian's cloak at some point and returned it to him. Yeah, because that's, yeah, and that's, they've never mentioned it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, and that would fit because he's in his reverie, right? Like, who knows? She can right. come put it on his shoulders and he's just not <laughs> sure. paying attention. And there's no point where he has to, you know, grab his cloak or something. Right. He always still has it. They hear Jonas coming. So the scarred faced man with the dirk waits for him and gets him under control when he enters. And they says, this is your master, isn't it? Well, don't move, my friend, or cry out. We'll kill you both. And that's the end of that. <laughs> so couple other things we should say about the big monster of, of other things that have either been suggested before or that it might be. And I mean, one thing I wondered too was like, is this one of the Megatherians that had been captured somehow? And, and so the Autark had it down there and, you know, maybe this isn't Abaya or Erebus, but perhaps this is one of the 17, one of the other ones that's being chained down there. Um, that's something I've seen a couple times, I think, on Reddit, I believe. Um, I believe that's that's believable, except that Severian feels like he has to guess mm -hmm. at what it is. Yeah. And he, if it was put there by the Autark, then he should know. Seems like he should he know. know for a fact. Yeah. So that's one thing that's been talked about. Um, other people have suggested that maybe this is what Baldanders would become, some kind of giant mm -hmm. terrorizing creature that's down there. Um, that is the goal after all. Mm -hmm, yep. Um, and the other thing I wonder is if, 
it's like, is that a deeper version of what the man apes become? Like if you, if you stay long enough, is that just what, what the dark? <laughs> something? I mean, I, that one makes less sense, but um, it was there. So those are certain other things that have been suggested here, but I'm kind of convinced now your, your point about, you know, him having to guess and, and not necessarily convinced that it is like, that's incredibly I look I understand how tenuous and weird and weak it is and because it's it's I've done it before but but still I I don't know all I can say is I've got these pieces and I'm putting them together the way they fit it's and otherwise this is Wolf's Ikea trip kit so and the other thing about this one as far as a mystery goes is that it's always been one to me that I'm like why keep this a mystery like was this just a sort of scary thing that was down there and I I think Mm -hmm. Mantis in some ways like he's kind of said yeah it's just kind of a mystery right like it's it's something we just don't we don't know and that could be but it just seems like such an odd thing to make a mystery of to me I don't know. Yeah. It's like, because it seems like if it's going to be a mystery, it ought to be mysterious for some reason. And Severian makes a <laughs> lot out of this. Um, yeah. And I hope it's not just Agilus's bands again, you know, just another <laughs> thing that just, or, or if the explanation is somewhere, it's some, you know, some puzzle that is so deeply hidden or something that we can't figure it out. But um, so there are a lot of, plenty of people have puzzled over this in tons and tons of ways. Mm-hmm. Um but this is a new suggestion of yours that I haven't heard before. So it's, it's still got that, that fun newness about yeah. it that makes it seem more compelling. <laughs> so, it's, got, it's got that new James smell. So. Right. So the only <laughs> other thing I was going to bring up is the title of the chapter is Cultulari, which of course is referring to these guys of Odalis's. But I was also, because of my curiosity about Jonas and just uncertainty, I was wondering if there's some way that, Jonas as a servant had been some kind of cultilari or bandit, um, something like that. Um, that would make sense uh, structurally, wouldn't it? Yeah, and or he may have he may have been a follower of Voltus for a while. Maybe he was a spy of Voltus. That couldn't have been a spy of Voltus. Never mind that. That's that doesn't make any sense. No, um, yeah, but he could be a spy. He could be a spy of Abaya. Yeah. So. Interesting. I, I'm curious, though. Yeah. What are other people's thoughts about the monster? Like what? Yes. What yeah. else do you think it is? What do you think is most likely? And especially why do both Severian and Jonah seem so kind of tippy toe around it? Like that's mm-hmm. the thing that really did stand out to me this time reading it was why are they so weird about it? Like if you have an idea of what it is, well, say it. I mean, like what otherwise... Otherwise, it's like, is Jonas just being coy for the sake of being coy? Or yeah, or why Why not tell him what you... Why is Severian being coy for the purpose of being coy? He's got a guess about it, but he doesn't... He likes to talk, yeah. but he doesn't want to talk about what that yeah. is. Some people have said, oh, well, if it's a giant weapon, then he just can't tell anybody because that'll give away the state secrets. But that doesn't make it's a lot of... It's not a state s- secret. Yeah, and it it's also not, doesn't... He's guessing at what it is. Yeah, he's guessing. Yeah. It's also just in terms of the story. It's like, this is a lot of to do about just some random thing that doesn't really affect the story then. And like, why yeah. we, why bring it up and hide it just because it's about future weapons? Like Severian never really cares about that kind of thing. Like, it's just right. like, there's that sort of, you know, the business of ruling in the future is not something that really comes up any other place. So why would that apply here? That's, that's the question I've always had about that. 
but yeah, we are definitely curious what other ideas are out there, or if there's some clue in Jonas and Severian's back and forth that we kind of overlooked or that we, we didn't think about that. I'd be curious to know too, yeah. because that is such a weird conversation between the two of them. That, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to ask both... you one more question. No, it's three <laughs> questions. Well, I'll answer. I'll still kind of answer them. I mean, it's just such a weird sort of cagey back and forth that it seems yeah. like there ought to be a way to put it together to explain the caginess. And honestly, your thing is one of the most promising as <laughs> that goes <laughs> well, that I've, I've seen so far. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, the answer would be a huge reach, but, uh, but I don't know. I mean, and, and I've talked before about how you don't have to go full first Severian theory to believe that there are sort of different versions of Severian. Different equasters right. everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, if you've got an answer, please bring your comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints to us on the Facebook group, the re- subreddit, Twitter, or email. Check us out on Instagram. Subscribe at Podbean or your podcast app and check us out on the YouTube playlist. You can find out how to do all that in the show notes. Leave an Apple podcast review and tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the more favor you. See you next time, everybody. Let me finish this and I'll run and get a cable. It seems obvious that it's supposed to be talking about Vodalus's soldiers. Vodalus's soldiers. Yeah, I can't do it. Is dandled a word? That's a good question. The Agia looks that we do about the way. Oh, hello, everybody. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which leads me to wonder, what's he going around collecting, you know, big iron? I guess it has some value, even a scrap. So where were you going? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But, um. Hathor knows about cargo. Try again. Hathor knows about cargo. When he carries Jonas from Whoa, the something, ant- something just happened. Your mic just started really going super loud. Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't change anything. You're getting quieter now. Uh, tell, me quieter. When I, tell me when I sound right. Yep. That's oh, okay. Let's try. Oh, let's just just try to avoid yeah. me sound like an idiot. Okay. <laughs> so Hathor knows about cargo.